All right, good morning, Three Circle. Great to be with you guys. All of our campuses joining us now and those online. Great to be with you as we continue the Tumbleweed series. Tumbleweeds. If you've ever watched a Western, you've seen them rolling around uh, in the desert or across town, and we think they're all cool, but people who have actually lived where tumbleweeds are will tell you they're a menace. They're horrible. They get in the way. They're like mosquitoes down here in the south, all right? You're like, God, why did you make these things, you know? And they just get in the way. And the thing about a tumbleweed I learned from watching a little discovery channel on these things is that they grow and then they catch the wind and the wind just snaps their root system off because their little root systems, there's really nothing to it. They're not really rooted very deep at all and their single stem root snaps easily and suddenly the tumbleweed begins to tumble begins to roll wherever the wind blows it. That's where it goes. And as it's blowing, it's throwing seeds everywhere. So it's throwing its, uh, uh, its confusing lifestyle everywhere it goes. And it's a real problem. And what we are finding through the Tumbleweed series is that if you'll go to the book of Ephesians chapter four, you will find that Paul tells us as Christians to not be that way, to not live the tumbleweed life. In fact, look at Ephesians 4.14. He says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So Paul says right here, hey, we need to stop being blown around by the wind. He's saying we need to stop being tumbleweed people. And since the the letter that we're reading was a letter written to a church, he's telling Christians to not be people who are blown around by the wind. As Christians, we need to be rooted. As Christians, we need to hold steadfast. And and we see here a warning to not do that. Also, we see that he compares being a tumbleweed to being a child. And it's perfectly fine for a child to be like that. It's cute when you're four and five years old to be like a tumbleweed, but it's getting a little old when you're 30, all right? In other words, Ephesians chapter four is all about us growing up, growing up as Christians, growing up into the the people that God has called us to be. And what I want you to see today is that Christians are equipped and empowered to avoid a tumbleweed lifestyle. Paul's telling us here, don't be like this. Don't be blown around by the wind, but he's not gonna leave us hanging. He's not gonna tell you to do something that he doesn't then teach you how to do it. So the rest of this chapter is all about equipping us to not live a tumbleweed life. Everything that comes before that verse we just read and everything that comes after that verse is all about you and I not being tumbleweeds. The problem is too many of us are. Too many of us are parenting like tumbleweeds. We just do what everybody else wants to do. We just go where the wind blows, wherever the culture blows, wherever the community blows. Uh, We do our uh, marriages that way. We got tumbleweed marriages. Just Just whatever, whatever's going on. We, we just kind of do it the way everybody else does. We do our finances, we do sexuality. Our opinions on things are not formed by theology. They're formed by whatever the wind is blowing. And so God says, we can't be like that. We can't live like that. So the question is, what's the solution then? What's the solution to a tumbleweed life? You know, uh, I had some weeds growing in my yard and a really smart guy in town who has a place that sells this kind of stuff. He said, you know what you need? Some Roundup. And whenever you say the word Roundup, you need to say it like a cowboy Roundup. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm about to do war against these weeds. You spray it on there today, tomorrow you go out and it's all dead, which is some scary. I'm thinking we need to wear a gas mask when you use this stuff, right? Don't mess up like spray it on a cat or something. You know, who knows? Not saying anyone should ever do that. Uh, 
just the weeds and the grass, but it works, man. And so is there a solution to tumbleweeds? Yes, it's the local church. Folks, the local church, according to Paul in this book of Ephesians, is the tumbleweed solution. You can write that down. The folks will even put it on the screen for you so you can write it in. It is the solution to the tumbleweed life, the local church. This is plan A. Plan A is the local church. And today we're gonna look at that because I want you to to not see this as just something you show up to or something you attend when you have the time or something you go to if nothing else is in the way. I want you to begin to see how beautiful and wonderful and powerful this thing called the local church is. And I want us as a church to not raise tumbleweed families. I don't wanna raise tumbleweed kids. I want kids who are firmly rooted so that when they go to college, college wind doesn't just blow them all over the place and current culture stuff doesn't just blow them all over the place. I want marriages that actually last a lifetime because they're not tumbleweed. They are rooted in Christ. I want a church that does that, don't you? The local church is God's plan A for keeping us from being like tumbleweeds and blown around in the wind. So last week we looked at verses one through six. Today we're gonna look at verses seven through 16. Verses one through six was all about unity. If you remember, he said, I want you unified. Not uniformed. Uniformity is not what the Bible calls us to. And certainly we're not uniformed in this room. I look across the room. Some of y'all have uh, like clothes on that are kind of hipster kind of looking. And some of you have clothes on that you were wearing back in high school. And you're like, it worked for me then. I'm going to keep rolling with it. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> okay. There's Bama fans in here. There's Auburn fans. There's Ohio State fans, I'm sure, somewhere. There's uh, people who like Cajun food and people who like Asian food. There's people who like George Strait and people who like Taylor Swift. And I'm gonna pray for one of those groups. I'll leave it there. So we're not all the same, are we? We're not uniform, but God does call us to unity. He says, we're not just saved from something, we're saved into something. So yes, you're safe from sin, from hell, from eternity separated from God. You're safe from that. But you're also saved into something, into a family, into, the, into this thing called the local church. And that's what we're gonna look at today. Ephesians 4, 7, Paul's gonna begin to help us understand why this is so important. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That word grace simply means gospel. What it means is, we are a body, but, but this is a transition. He's saying, but we're also still individuals. It's not like we were absorbed into this body because that would be uniformity. We'd all start looking alike like a bunch of robots. That's not who we are. We are a bunch of individuals that come together in unity as a body, but we're still individuals. And he says here, the thing holding us together is that grace we got from Jesus, the gospel. How many of you in this room would raise your hand and say, I'm a Christian because Jesus showed me grace and mercy and died on the cross for me? I got five, I got six, okay. Because I'll go Billy Graham on you, man. All right, come, come as you are, come, all right. No R's, no R's, here we go. Because you know he had that old school Southern accent. Anyway, it's a whole nother story, Billy. Here's the deal. We don't all look the same, but that's where we come together, right? He says, each one of us have received this grace. So we're a gospel body. We're still made up of individuals. We're a gospel body. That's what we are as a church. 
We don't just show up. We're not just spectators. This is serious business. This actually matters, what we're doing here. And then, verses 8 through 10, again, we're just walking right through this book. Verses 8 through 10 happen to be some very mysterious verses. There's all sorts of theological conjecture out there about what these verses mean. We're going to walk all the way through all of that. And I hope to help you not miss the point of what this is all about. I'm going to tell you what the main point is first, so you got that. Then we'll talk about the stuff people like to kind of uh, talk about, kind of have opinions on. So let's do that, all right? Here's the verses. He says, therefore it says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse nine, Paul's gonna commentate. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, now there are camps out there, and by the way, they're not bad, they're, they're all good, love Jesus. There's people that would say that verse, and some others we'll read in a minute, is actually saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually went into hell, went down to hell, and preached to the people in hell in chains. And that he did this, so that's, that's a whole little world that people think, yeah, yeah, that's what that means. And then there's others that think he went to another spot, and there's others that have different viewpoints on it, okay? What I want to tell you, first of all, that is totally missing the point of what this means. You're missing it. Paul was not, just like a bunch of theologians spend 2,000 years talking about, I wonder how far down he went. What part of the earth was he in? It's like, no, you're missing the point. So what is the point? All right, let me help you. Paul's actually quoting a psalm. And the psalm is a Davidic psalm, meaning it's about David. David was a conquering king. And he returned to Jerusalem, his city, as a conqueror. He had won the battles. When ancient kings did that, if they were good kings... Now, if they were like Napoleon or Hitler or someone like that, they would not care about the citizens. It was all about them and they won the victory. But a good king like David would return and he would say, hey, my victory is your victory. We all won. And one thing those ancient kings would do to help everyone celebrate is he'd get, they would give everyone a gift. All the people, it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter what social stratus you operated in. You got a gift from the king. It may be a, a memento from the war. It may be a bracelet that was taken as a spoil from prisoners, whatever. You would get a gift, and it would mean something to you, right? Paul's using ancient king imagery to help us understand what Jesus did, and it's too bad that we've missed the point, but I'm gonna help you see it now because what he's saying is, is that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, and then as we know, he ascended, right? Look, he descended. He said he descended first. What does that mean? The incarnation, Colossians tells you Jesus lowered himself by coming to this earth, human flesh. We're about to celebrate it, Christmas time. And then he died and rose again, and we all know the ascension, we call it. He ascended to heaven, and everybody's standing around like, oh, where's he going? And he, where did he go? The Bible says that when Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended back to heaven like David walking into Jerusalem. Jesus walked back into heaven as a conquering king. Can you imagine the ear-piercing sound when a billion on top of a billion angels began to shout a victory cry as the king of kings walked back into heaven with nail-scarred hands? And the Bible says he held the keys to hell and Hades and death in his hands. David defeated armies. Jesus defeated death and the grave and Satan and hell are you kidding me? I wish I could have been there that day. I wish I could have heard that song, right? So 
Paul's trying to get us to see that when Jesus died on the cross, man, it was unbelievably powerful. When he raised from the dead, there's more going on than we can imagine. And watch this. This is why the church is so important. Because we are his city. We are his people. So when Jesus walks back into heaven, nail scars and all, victorious, he turns back to his people. And he says to us, my victory is your victory. My resurrection's your resurrection. Same power that lives in me that raised me from the dead is the power that lives in you. And guess what? Like David did for his people, he gave us gifts. Every single one of us were gifted. You were given a gift. But your gift was not meant to operate in isolation. You weren't meant to go home and go, look at my gift. You weren't meant to look in your mirror and go, I'm a winner. People like me. I have a gift. No, our gift is to operate for one another as citizens of the kingdom. It's an unbelievable picture, okay? So the point of the passage is the king giving gifts. Jesus returned to heaven as a victorious king. He gives gifts to his citizens. He's quoting this psalm, Psalm 68, 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And Paul's saying, like David did that, even greater, Jesus did this. So the point of the passage is the king giving gifts. Not whether Jesus went into hell or not. That's for Bible nerds to squabble about for 2,000 years. Sitting around in coffee shops, et cetera, et cetera. But... I being a Bible nerd, I thought, let's talk about it. Because while we're here, we might as well. While we're in the neighborhood, we might as well stop at the weird house and check it out too. So what is all this, all of this about this verse? Well, let's, let's go into it and let's see because there's some points to be made here. There are two other places where the scriptures point to this. And what I want you to see is that every other time this is mentioned, it's got the same core. And the core is Jesus is the king who's victorious. That's what we're supposed to see. But there's enough mystery there to say, well, there was something going on here. Uh, look at Colossians 2.14. What happened when Jesus died? Well, here's more firepower for us. And again, the news just keeps getting better. I hope y'all can stay in your seat. I hope that you don't just raise the roof on this place. It's that good. Are y'all ready? Paul said, when Jesus died on the cross, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, look at this picture, and he nailed it to the cross. I love this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in himself. Come on. How do we, who's the rulers that he put to shame? Well, Ephesians 6.12 tells you, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities in this dark world. Like, that's, that's demonic power. I don't know how. We don't have all of it. It's just enough for God to say, hey, let me let you know, there's more than you think that happened that day. When Jesus dropped his head in death on Golgotha, something broke loose. And we don't know what happened, but here's what we do know. Satan thought, all demonic power thought that they were winning a victory and they had no idea what got unleashed on Golgotha that day. 
They had no idea what was about to be unleashed. And the Bible says that Jesus in his death put to open shame the one who tries to shame you. Thank you, Jesus. Something happened that day. Peter wrote about it as well. Look what he says. Again, the core is Jesus on the cross. He says in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins. They take us right to the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Watch this. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's mysterious. Verse 19, I love it. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What does that mean? And I got a Greek phrase for you. I don't know. I don't know. People have been squabbling over that for a long time. Augustine to Calvin, Spurgeon to Wesley. But I'm about to clear it up for us today. No, I'm not. But I am going to tell you where we're going to land the plane. And here's where I think we can safely land the plane. You ready? Because I think it glorifies Jesus and it gets to the point. And then we can all faithfully talk about it over coffees and, and lovingly disagree or whatever. Here's what I think, though, it's saying. The death, burial, and resurrection were both physical and spiritual events, and they have greater consequences than even we can comprehend. There's more that happened on that hill that day than we realize. I don't know how he put Satan to open shame. I don't know how the sins of every human that will ever follow Jesus, because there were specific people and specific sins that were on that list, and they were nailed to his cross. I don't know how all that worked. I just know there's more going on on that cross and in that tomb. And when he got up out of that grave, there's more going on than we could even see. And I'm real glad. I'm real glad to be a part of it. I'm glad you're a part of it, okay? So we just need to sit back and wonder. But all of that brings this to mind. I don't know how we read all of this, Jesus walking back into heaven, victorious, and giving his people gifts. I don't know how we read all of that and then treat it so like haphazardly. Like, I'll, be a, I'll go to church when I can. I'm just being honest with you today. I'm gonna go all old school preacher today. Hold on tight. In a world where everything's about what I want, what's convenient to me, in a world where churches do Thursday night church. Because we know everything's so busy. I get it. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, remember what Paul said last week? He said, I urge you. We need to start taking this seriously, church. We need to realize what it costs, what we're a part of, who we're following, what this thing's all about. This thing has cosmic consequences. This thing we're a part of, this isn't just us getting together every Sunday. This is serious business, don't you think? I want us to begin to see it that way. So this isn't a spectator sport. And with all that in mind, then Paul says, okay, now that you realize that the church is his citizens of his kingdom, and that with all that glory and power, he turned around and gave us gifts that we're supposed to use together. He tells us what a church is supposed to look like. Verses 11 through 16. Let's just read it and then we'll slowly unpack it, okay? Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, he says, and he gave, remember I said he, he gave gifts. David gave stuff, Jesus did, and here's what he did. He gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why did he give these gifts? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, watch this, to mature adulthood, manhood. Do you see the theme? He wants us to grow up, right? 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're not just growing up, we're growing up to be like him. Verse 14, so that, here's our verse, we may no longer be like children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, so here's what we should do. Rather, we need to speak the truth in love and we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined, held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is Paul describing a real biblical church. Not just a gathering, not just to get together, not just the place you like right now, not just a place that's convenient sometimes if nothing else is going on or if you're not feeling good. No, the church, your family. Let's get into it. Let's begin to walk slowly through. He gives four offices that real biblical churches need to have going on. The first one's apostles. This is a temporary office that was for back then. We benefit from what happened 2,000 years ago with the apostles. Apostles were personal witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. So apostles, and by the way, if, if there's a church you know of or if you have someone, you go, well, this person loves Jesus and their church calls the pastor apostles and all that, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to squabble with any of that. I'm just telling you that it's wrong. That's all I'm gonna say. Like, that's all I'm gonna say. So I love them in Jesus' name and we'll be in heaven and all that, but I'm just telling you that, that this is at least what we would say here at Three Circle. The apostles like, were the disciples, Judas you know, took his own life. Then Paul is added and Paul saw Jesus resurrected in the body on the Damascus road. Remember that? So these are the apostles and they, they had authority, power. They did stuff. I don't know if any of you walk past people who are sick and your shadow hits them and they're healed. All right then. They were special. They were humans, but God empowered them to do stuff that was needed to establish the church. But now these other offices are still absolutely in place. Prophets, I'm doing it right now. Boldly proclaim God's word. So we get this thing, prophets tell the future. No, they don't, they proclaim God's word. And if God's word happens to have futuristic things in it, like Daniel and Isaiah, but those guys were just preachers. They weren't magicians telling the future, looking into a crystal ball. Ooh, what do I see here? No, none of that. They're just preaching God's word. And so, that's all I'm doing is preaching God's word, and that is the proclamation of the word. Then there's evangelists. Evangelists share the gospel. I don't want you to add the word primarily because it's not, all, it's, it's not always only, but most of the time an evangelist is going for the lost. Now, what's an example of an evangelist in our lifetime? A famous one. Billy Graham. Come as you are. Come. Had his old buddy singing, right? And we, I, mean, I just love Billy Graham's ministry. So grateful for his legacy. Now, did Billy Graham speak to Christians too? Of course. So it's not only, it's just primarily he was speaking to people far from God. And then you have pastors and teachers who shepherd and teach believers primarily. Does that make sense? So like today I'm operating in the prophetic just preaching God's word, but also in the shepherd teacher. I'm primarily talking to believers, primarily believers. I know there's lost people in the room. And if you're here, I hope you're benefiting and I hope you'll follow Jesus. But there's a couple of times a year I turn into more evangelists. Those two things flip. You wanna guess when they are? 
Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve services. Because I love y'all, but y'all are fine. You're going to heaven. I'm not worried about you that night. I want you to like it. We'll do the candles for you and all that. We got music. You'll feel good, I promise. But I want you to bring your friends. Because I want to tell them the gospel of Jesus. Y'all with me? And then on Easter, once again, I love you. But y'all are going to heaven. You're in. I'm looking for your lost friend you're going to bring on Easter. I know statistically they're going to be here. So I preach a little different that day. I turn it, I'm an evangelist that day. And I hope you benefit from it. Does that make sense, guys, how the church is supposed to operate? All right. Now, what happens when churches operate? Because notice, these four, those aren't superstars. They're servants. Those four offices, the apostles started it, are equipping everyday Christians like we all are to do ministry every day of our lives, whether that's at a restaurant or a ball field or a school or a law office or wherever, okay? And if you look at what Paul said, I'm gonna give you the six things he says happens when a church operates on all cylinders, when it's working right. And the first thing that happens, according to verse 12, is believers are equipped. You get what you need to do what God's called you to do. My hope every Sunday is that at Three Circle, we are equipping you and your kids to not be tumbleweeds, right? I don't want tumbleweed kids. I don't want kids just go, oh, my friends are doing it. I don't want that. I want kids who actually have conviction. And I have had enough of the culture and even Christian culture telling me that's impossible. Don't tell me a 13 or a 14 year old can't follow Jesus with his or her whole heart. You better believe they can and let's challenge them and teach them and model it and stop playing this game that they need a five or six year break to go uh, sow their wild oats and go do their thing because kids are kids. I'd like to just, if you don't mind, drop that garbage on the side of the road and let's follow Jesus and raise up a generation that actually wants to follow him. Can we just do that? He's up, Chris. He's up, man. It's all right. <laughs> Secondly, ministry is enhanced. Ministry is enhanced. Just, I'm, just re- I'm just reading it right out of the Bible for you. It says here, we equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Ministry begins to happen. It's not, watch this, it's not, this stage is too small for what God wants to do through three circle. This, I can't, it's just us. This isn't big enough. No, I want you, like, you're supposed to leave this and take the gospel and live the gospel out there. That's where it happened. That's the magic, man. And so ministry is enhanced. We're still in verse 12. The church is edified. It says we're built up. How many of you, when you come to church and you leave here, you leave going, I'm really glad I came to church today. Does that ever happen for anyone? You're built up? Awesome. That's what we want because the gospel's good news. That's what happens when churches operate correctly. Fourthly, Christians grow up. We mature when it's plan A. Local churches, we grow up in our faith. Now, every healthy church should have some babies, some toddlers, some adolescents, some teenagers, some young adults, some middle-aged adults, and some seniors. All That's why we're multi-generational here. So when I walk in a church and there's only one of those sections, I get a little nervous. I want multi-generational, all of us together, right? All of us in this room, but we're all growing. Babies shouldn't stay babies. When my kids were little, the doctors would check them to make sure they were growing. 
At one point, my wife and I were terrified that our beautiful daughter, Gracie, was malnourished because she would only eat for a long time. My daughter would only drink milk and eat nuts and berries. That's it. That's all. Pistachios, cashews, almonds. She would eat that. Her little plate would be grapes, berries, and nuts. And I thought, she's malnourished. And one day we go to the doctor and I said, hey, I'm worried. This is all she eats. She just eats nuts and berries and drinks milk. And my doctor looked at me. Her doctor looked at me and said, I'll be honest with you, you probably should try it too because <laughs> look at her. I was offended. She said, that's actually the perfect diet. What's wrong with you? Beautiful skin, look at this child. But they were checking to make sure she was growing. We are supposed to be growing and maturing as Christians. Local churches are where this happens. The church becomes effective. I love this. When this happens, it says, we all attain. That means it actually happens. I love watching kids come through our student ministry. My oldest son, uh, the waterworks are turned on because he's a senior this year. And we're having all those senior last and all that. I'll tell you what, though, I'm super proud of my oldest son because I've watched him grow in his faith. I was there the day at a church camp when I saw that little hand go up when he was a kid from this church at a, at a camp. He gave his life to Jesus. But I've watched him grow. He's not perfect. But I can't tell you how proud I am of the Christian young man he is. And that happened because of a local church. It happened right here. Man, I love that. It's effective. And then finally, it says at the very end there, verse 16, the church grows. The congregation grows. Sometimes numerically, we've seen that happen at Three Circle, but I hope all the time we grow in depth, not just wide, but deep, because we can always get healthier, closer to Jesus, right? More like Jesus. And I'm going to tell you right up, just right up front, if you know our staff, you go talk to our staff, ask about our meetings. I want you to hear my heart and our heart as a team. We very rarely talk about growing this church numerically. We talk all the time about how to make it healthier, how to help you get healthier, how to make this church deeper, because we just believe a healthy church will probably grow at some point. So we don't worry about that part too much. We just worry about depth, 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 word of God, rooting in the word, walking with Jesus. That's what we want to see happen. So what we see here is God uses the local church to grow his people to become more like Jesus. It's clear we're growing up into the fullness of Christ. We want to look like him, sound like him, act like him, love like him, have joy like him, peace like him, like Jesus. That's the point of the local church. Don't miss this, this little phrase in verse 15, in order for all of this to happen, for us to grow, it requires speaking the truth in love. Growth demands intentional discomfort in order for us to grow. This is kind of the tough part, iron sharpens iron. It's where I gotta look at you, you gotta look at me and go, hey man, I don't know about that, I'm praying for you. I need friends in my life that can look at me and go, hey man, what's going on with you? You're off, not right, something's up. I got friends like that, they will tell me. I've got friends I'm convinced that if I tried to blow my life up and mess up my marriage, and mess up my family, they might physically harm me, I'm pretty sure. They threatened it, so I guess I better be sure. 
They look at me on a regular basis. Just try, just try to mess your marriage up, Chris. We tell you, man, that's what I get. That's the kind of friends we need, don't we, in the church? We need brothers and sisters who love us enough to tell us the truth and listen. And if you can't, if you only will hear from others what you want to hear, pretty soon that's all you'll get. If all you'll ever listen to is what you want to hear, pretty soon that's all anyone will give you. But what you desperately need is community for people to tell you what you desperately need to hear. The Bible says in John 1, 14, Jesus modeled this. He was full of grace and truth. And his disciples found out real quick, Jesus could be full of joy and kind, lay his life down for them, and no one could burn you down one side and up the other more than Jesus could. Hello, Peter. One second, Jesus is telling him, you heard that straight from God. The next second, you're the devil. Get behind me. Hello. Jesus had truth and grace, didn't he? We need it too. And this is what real churches look like. And none of that can happen unless we take this seriously. We like to call it the train here at Three Circle. Behind the scenes, I'll give it to you publicly now. That's a train going down the tracks. That train is Three Circle Church, the people who are really a part of it. Where is it headed? Because it's moving. It's headed towards maturity in Christ. Not bigger, not trying to be the next cool thing, not trying to take over the state or the Gulf Coast or any of that stuff. We just want to be a faithful church and that train is headed towards men and women, families, marriages, seniors, babies alike, towards maturity in Jesus, okay? That's the direction. Well, then what are the tracks? Train tracks are made of three things. Rails, one on each side, and Railroad ties in the middle, holding them together, right? Okay. The three things at three circle that the train runs on to get us all mature in Jesus. Very simple. We worship together and we make it a priority. We serve together. We serve. We find ways to serve. And then we commune together. We get in groups. We get in community so that we're around each other in smaller places. And when we do those three things, that train gets moving down the tracks towards maturity in Christ. And today I would say in light of all this, are you doing those things? Are those things happening in your life? An effective church requires us to sacrifice so that we have unity, health, and effectiveness. That's how it works. And my prayer is that we will continue to pursue being that church. How many of you are with me? Would you join me in that? How many of you are like, I'm with you, man. Let's be that church. Let's be that church. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. And I pray now as this church finds out opportunities that they can put this literally immediately into practice, that you would use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.